Hey everyone, welcome to the 14th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Howard Joffe, the head coach of the 2021 and 2022 NCAA Women's Tennis Champion, Texas Longhorns. Today we discuss what he looks for in a recruit, how his team handled the pressure of defending their title, and how to use your emotions and mindset to maximize your level of play. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Howard, welcome to the pod. Uh, John, thanks so much for having me. Well, I know you've been busy. Uh, you just spent, I don't know what it is now, probably seven to 10 days in Champaign defending your 2021 NCAA championship. Uh, you beat Oklahoma in the final this year. So that's back-to-back titles. And we're going to get into that. But before we do, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to go through your history for the people out there that don't know you that well. Uh, you started at Miami of Ohio in 2008. And I believe in your two years there, you got them to their first ever NCAA tournament. The second... Uh, school you went to was Maryland. And in your two seasons there, you got them into the top 20, which I believe was the highest ranking ever for that program. You then went to Texas A&M and in year two reached the NCAA finals. And now you're at Texas and you've won back-to-back NCAA championships. So what is it about your philosophy or what are your core tenets of building a team that have allowed you to be successful at so many different places so quickly? I mean, uh, John, thanks for the question and thanks for the pump up. Uh, I, I, I kind of need, uh, need, need, need to hear that each morning. <laughs> it's, it's a good way to start a day and certainly a podcast. But um, to your question, I mean, you know, so much goes into a team um, winning a, a, a game or a match. And so um, multiple things. But I think if I had to say the one thing that's been really consistent over all the years is for whatever reason, I've been able to work uh, privately um, with the players. You know, um, we talk in college athletics, as you know, about individual time and the team practice. And a big uh, thing in the program is wherever I've been is doing a lot of private lessons and really uh, giving a lot of myself and the assistant coaches giving a lot of themselves to, to individual instruction much like you would if you were at a tennis academy or independently a professional player. You, of course, need um, a coach and support and all the necessary and sufficient conditions to be good, the, the fitness trainer. But you really need someone individually to, to really improve uh, and move the needle, or so to speak, with, with your game. And so some of the stuff that your question sort of hints at is success and I mean, I'd like to think that the, the, the success has been great, but I think the real success is seeing um, players and, and collectively teams improve the level of their play from coming in to, to where they are, you know, six months, a year out. And, and of course, in some cases, four years out. And then the last part I'd, I'd add to that, um, obviously, recruiting is a big part of it. Um, you've got to, you know, have the, the horses, um, or, or again, uh, so to speak. And I think later in my career at Texas, I've come to learn a little bit, but how important, and you know, people have different ways of saying it, but just the psychological component is. And I think that the strength that our team has shown in the last two years, obviously some the same, some different people, a lot of that is off the back of spending a lot of time working on 
what one you know just in pop culture might say is the psychology of the game or or uh, one's approach to it and that's not to suggest we don't work hard on you know the the stuff that that everyone worries about the forehands the backhands the the fitness and what have you you mentioned two things so we used to always say at duke you know if you want to be good you've got like you said you've got to recruit good players and then once they get there they got to get better so when you're looking for players out there, like what are the types of things when you're on the recruiting trail? What are you looking for? There's so many different types of players, but what are you looking for that's kind of a common ground amongst all the girls you look at? It's interesting. I had a conversation about our program at the moment and where we're headed and where we've been with uh, Coach Fogelman, my partner in crime. And the thing he sort of said with a very wry look on his face, um, which is absolutely on the nose, for us, it, 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 the, the tenant that is really a critical item is passion for the game. Someone's got to really enjoy it. And I think everywhere you look in life, to be a somebody, whether it's a political somebody or a tennis somebody or a soccer somebody or a business somebody, the, the, the skills that you have and you don't have either handicap you or help you. But the fuel that's really underneath it, the the, the real power is in um, the passion, the, the 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 want to, and and to me, as I look around, um, I've learned over a long time that that is a lot more valuable than ten ranking spots or a huge talent. Um, of of course, those things are nice, but the stuff that ultimately gets it done is 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 really hard work. And in order to work hard. You can't force it. It's got to be someone's passion. And I would say that's the biggest uh, uh, thing. If someone has real passion and enjoyment and love of the game, they really can be whoever they want to be in the game. How does that show up for you? So like, let's say you go watch a girl at the national hard courts or you're watching her in practice. Like, how do you, what are some things that they do that kind of shows you how much passion they have for the game? I think there are a lot of things. I mean, I think we all know in junior tennis, uh, it's talked about, It's the scribes write about it, is moms and dads often project what they really want um, onto kids. And and so I think you, you, you see these things um, in the latent things, the uninte- unintended things. It, you know, you see the interplay between parents and the kids when the kids are competing or uh, when you recruit. And it's not so much in the direct verbiage or the substance, but you just see, you get a felt sense, or at least I do, that, wow, this mom really wants it badly, but I need to hear from, you know, Susie, you know, and and that's one of the things I've started to do more in the recruiting is, you know, just move to the side all the, 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 the speak of substance and rankings and schedules and what have you, and just really ask a young person, you know, what do I need to know about your tennis? <laughs> you know, um, and, and and sort of see where that goes, because I think with everything, it's also a fancy word in our culture now, this idea of being intentional about something, which is to say, if I say, John, you know, I want to paint this house red, the expectation is I'm headed to Home Depot to buy uh, some buckets of, of red paint, you know, and I don't think any player that's ever sat in front of me and said, well, I think I might like to try to be a pro and we'll see how it goes. Um, that's not really suggestive. Uh, it doesn't make neither person as good or bad qualitatively, but it isn't really suggestive of someone that's 
got a burning burning passion that this is what I want. And 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 just just so that we're clear, you don't have to want to be a pro to be a very good tennis player at Duke or Texas or Stanford or or, or wherever. But I think, and I, maybe I'm you know in a political way avoiding the question, but I, I do think I'm giving it my best uh, effort. It's the latent things um, uh, uh, to see really where there's r- real energy and excitement around playing versus the ho-hum, you know, I like to do fitness four hours a day and that, and, and, and that stuff. And um, it's, it's subtle, but I guess you've got to have good antennae. I used to always think, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a job interview, right? Like a kid would come on campus on a visit at Duke and, you know, look, we're putting on a, a good visit for them as well. We want to be on our best behavior, everything to the tens. And I also know that that kid has all their answers, you know, preset and they want to come off just as good. And like you said, I used to pick up in the small things, maybe the way they were acting when we had a practice or the way they'd look at things and the questions they would ask. And that's more how I got the sense for what type of kid they were and how interested they were versus maybe how they did when I watched them practice. I knew they were going to do right. a good job. I mean, if I fly to watch them practice and they can't give me effort, I mean, that's that's kind of shocking, right? So Right. And, and that's why I, I, I had said, and I, you got it exactly, it's, it's, it's the latent stuff, right? Everyone is a hard worker, or at least that's what the script says. Everyone is passionate and wants to do great. But it's, it's sort of the little things. You know, as a young coach, uh, I was, um, before my Miami of Ohio stint, I was Richard Gallion's assistant coach for five years at USC. And we had just like, like extraordinarily good teams. And I would say like 90% of the players that came, which was always curious to me, said they would like to pursue professional tennis. And yet on the visit, were not really that interested in watching a private lesson or a practice. And again, just so I'm clear, that doesn't make you a good or bad person, but it is a sort of a head scratcher, right? And so that's one thing that I've done as a function of advertising, you know, is on visits, I sort of insist the kids watch a private lesson to, to see what the energy is and to see what the substance is, because I can brag on your show about how many private lessons I like to give. But if a kid doesn't really see the value in that, then that, that that's a good point of departure. And so definitely some of the latent things tip, tip one off um, about the, 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 the true passion, because that will be a big determinant of how far one goes. I've been, this is two years now that I've been uh, in the junior world, right? So I'm dealing with a lot of 14 to 17 year old kids. And I've been really surprised actually how little they know about the recruiting process and how little they know about how coaches think. And since I spent 12 years as an assistant and talking to head coaches like yourself, I have a pretty good idea kind of what the common group think among head coaches are. This question is kind of for those kids and those parents, but at what year in high school or juniors do you actually start paying attention to a player? Well, full disclosure, if you're Howard Joffe, you don't, because unfortunately, I would say that if I was to try to improve my craft in terms of the job, I'd do a better job with the recruiting my nature is to spend an inordinate amount of the time on the court with the kids who are in the program. 
And as a result, I probably, you, you know, I think a lot of your listeners and stuff would know that the, the recruiting has become further and further out. You know, uh, official visits started in junior year. And I'm always a little bit the, the country bumpkin who's uh, like just looking like six months out when I see all over Twitter, this kid's committed already for two years time. And so I don't get out enough and see enough. But yeah, I'm sorry, I don't don't have a, 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 such a good answer. I mean, for for me, I'd probably you know I, I I try to get out to some tournaments and 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 see kids compete. And you know, a, a guy I lived at who actually passed away last year, he was a great tennis player as well and a doctor in Beverly Hills. He always gave me advice on the stock exchange, and he said, "Don't buy a share that people say." He says, "Just look around at like what things you like," you know. So God, if I took his advice 20 years ago, I love Chipotle burritos. I should have bought that and I'd actually be you know, you know, um, living high on the hog now. But that is sort of a little bit my approach. I'll go to the U.S. Nationals or the clay courts, not really um, pointing and shooting per se, just looking around and seeing sort of who to me is shining, who who, who really plays well, who um is motivated and then of course have a look at you know if it's a viable match and what have you but i mean i'm guessing this podcast is also instructive for for younger people i mean and i i do think um definitely uh, uh, everyone needs to be able to develop so you know we've all seen the videos of roger federer breaking tennis rackets and going ballistic as a 15 year old kid and of course, what he was able to do, I'm quite certain that behind his, you know, Swiss watch and his smile these days, there is still that burning rage and competitiveness that we'd see. And yet he's managed to channel it uh, 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 for a force for good for him. And so I w- wouldn't read that much into how someone is doing or performing as, you know, a 13 and a 14 year old, I think you know, closer uh, uh, to, to, to college age is where you really want to see how, how they're developing. So you said, I don't think I have a good answer, but honestly, I think a lot of coaches would answer the same way. And that's the advice I've given out is I've had eighth and ninth graders asking me if I'm too far behind, you know, to, to get to Texas or wherever it is. And I'm like, too far behind for what? Like you've got three, four years, get better, see what happens. People make jumps at different times. I, I'm guessing by your answer, you don't know how a lot of your girls were as an eighth grader, <laughs> but you knew what they were as a, maybe a junior, maybe a senior in high school, but they had time to get better. And I sense that panic from kids. And so your answer, I think, is is great for them to hear that you're not stressing out about their results as a 14-year-old. No, I mean, no one is. And I think just two points that might help uh, if, if some of the listeners are parents of 14-year-olds and what have you. I mean, we all have in psychology, I don't know if it's an actual term, but the term of false self, okay? And the false self is to suggest that it's our Instagram self, right? The way we present to the world, um, everyone's got to sort of play the game, right? Um, If the regents at Texas call me in, I'm going to wear my burned orange tie um, and say what needs to be said for that audience. That's sort of the false self. And I think too much and uh, you know everyone gets on this bandwagon but it is true that things like social media and stuff i mean have you know 13 year olds sort of judging themselves 
relative to what where they can be. And I mean, the whole trick, not to use another cliche, with sports, is with anything, is to just be present where, where your feet are at this moment, right? <laughs> um, and that's the way to progress, right? Just concern yourself with, with your own path. And the other point that I would just make to that is that I often just talk, and I don't follow a pro tennis well enough, but I know that many years ago, there were four really great players. And the one was Gasquet. He had the sharpest trajectory. Everyone was, oh, he's going to be the best. And then, you know, came Nadal, and then came Djokovic a little slower. And, you know, and so... Everyone um, has their own path. That's what maybe 13-year-olds need to hear. (laughs) And enjoying, having passion, and being present with what you're doing, those things will will get you to where you you need to be and want to be versus uh, the worry about all the false self stuff, you know? I want to get to what we were talking about earlier, which was the, the second part of what you thought made a great program, which is obviously the individual time and player development each player's got unique talents. They have their own mental issues. They have their own physical strengths. Are there any like core tennis principles that you try to instill in your team that you feel like tran- uh, like directly translate to winning and losing? Well, so, so two things. Uh, in terms of the stuff that everyone concerns themselves with, like, you know, technique and the forehand and the backhand, And the answer is no, Um, I don't have a system, right? Systems are always made to be broken, right? So just like a doctor, if you took a kid in and before he was examined, they had already written the prescription, you'd be like horrified. (laughs) And so the way that I choose to do it is um, obviously watch players and then get out there and hit with them and uh, figure out what the, you know, each one is a puzzle, as you say, and figure out what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. How can we make the strengths better? How can we plug the weaknesses? And and that sort of informs the work um, with that. But then the second part of your question, or at least it hinted a little bit, is there one common thing? And I think, like I said, later in my career, I've definitely just become uh, uh, much more aware of the power of the importance of the psychology behind all of it. And I think that's something... That also varies. We all have very different resource places, right? Places where we feel like we can, you know, go be a killer and a winner. Um, You know, um, some people more intense, some people less intense. Everyone's different. But what is essential is to spend time in a serious way looking at where your most resource place is, right? I mean, if we look at, and I've never met him, but Nadal, I just spoke about him you know, all your listeners would, we know something about Nadal. When he's 5-0 down and the guy smashes the ball at 40 love in the open court, we know that Nadal goes and runs into the stands to try to get it and, and, and try to get one point. So what we can infer is that something, a resource that he has is he's just tenacious, right? He's a really tenacious, determined person. That resource has nothing to do with his tennis, okay? It's just a resource he uses to win a lot of tennis matches. One would imagine, you know, if Rafa ran a McDonald's, um, based on just watching who he is, we would imagine he'd be he'd run it like in a really tenacious way. He also looks to me to be a really fanatically 
organized um, with OCD, like the bottles he places. So it will be the cleanest restaurant of all time and probably the best selling McDonald's in the United States. And those qualities are resources that he has as a person, which he uses to great effect. And I think that's just a message to your question about the players on my team is, you know, if if you aren't aware of those type of resources, as coaches, we're always talking, wow, you know, your second serve just needs to get bigger and you need to attack more. And, and all that stuff is true or not true or whatever. But can you imagine if, like, you, you were able to really, in a real way, get in touch with what your, your, your real inside resources are and unleash that in the games? It really makes a big difference. So that is something late in my career that has been a big emphasis with our players. That's one thing I've seen is you can win a lot of different ways. I've seen people with no serve, with only a serve, great movers, slow is there anything that you do with the girls, like you were talking about bringing out that tenaciousness or that desire, that little something deep down? Are there any techniques? Are there any, any things you do to try to get that out of them? Because not many people tap into that, especially at such an early age. I think, I mean, the one thing that we do in our program at the beginning of the year is listen to the players. I do sort of, uh, and again, I'm not a, a guru, but just an interview with each player to firstly hear from them what their intentions are, right? Like, like you want to win the NCAA, you want to be a, you know, where do you want to be at 25 and, and help them scrub up to be real clear about what they want. That's always the starting point. But then we also look at asking them in their words and their feelings, when were they really shining, right? I mean, everyone's got a story, right, about, you know, girls designated Ohio 14s, I was on fire. And there I'm looking, I explain to them, I'm not looking for how big you served, but more what about you was so special. Because it's no use me telling someone, right? It's better to me to hear what really the resources are, right? And, you know, you hear things like, well, that day I was incredibly calm and I was focused or I was tenacious, you know, resources. Um, and I take it down because I'm not a dum-dum, <laughs> okay? And then we've got sort of some of the resources they have. But then another thing we look at is like, what are the sort of feelings? So when you hit the winner to go up 5-1 and you kind of had that felt sense, I got this match, that is always associated with a feeling that doesn't happen in the head, right? I mean, it, it, you feel good, right? So when you fall in love, you don't feel, it's not in your head. You, you feel something in your tummy and your heart and try to get them to tap into where in the body that takes place so that in a sense, it's sort of an interview that looks at what, not to sound like a Buddha, but what the best tennis self looks like. And then we also look at where the crappy energy is, okay? Where, where did you really suck, okay? And that's also instructive because when the attitude is bad or when they're being self-critical, that's what life does. It taps us on the shoulder, it asks us questions, and that's what's going to happen in matches. And you can't outrun the feelings. So to find out what they're about, uh, that's energy as well. And then, of course, the, uh, as the year develops, to try to help them to turn the lousy energy into good energy and, and, and what have you without getting into all the details. But yeah, I, to me, that's a huge part because all of us, John, 
have so many different parts of ourselves, okay? We started off before this podcast talking about the chores that we have at home. And when my wife asks me to go mulch in the yard, my best husband can come out. Uh, Honey, with the greatest of pleasure, let me go buy 100 bags of mulch and carry them on my back. But then there's also the crappy husband self um, who wants to be left alone and have a beer and watch TV. And we all are that way. And the whole secret in sports is when the game is on is to tap into that part of you, which is a winner and a killer, right? Again, I know I'm, you know, wagging my proverbial finger, but I I, I really have become such a believer in that being the, 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 the critical item that really separates um, winning from losing and, and what have you. I love I love that answer. And I will start referring to you the rest of the podcast as a Buddha or a guru after uh, <laughs> after all these answers. Um, so I, I did say I do want to pick up on the last, you know, the 2022 NCAA championship that just happened. You beat Oklahoma in the finals. You know, anyone who's played college tennis knows it, but I'm sure in the NCAAs it's just amplified 10 times the emotion, the pressure. Is there anything you do? There's so many good teams every year, and now you've won back-to-back. So is there anything that you do besides tapping into that tenaciousness that helps your girls be relaxed on like the biggest stage that there is? You know, I don't, uh, I, I don't think so. You know, it's interesting because, of course, you want them to be loose and relaxed. I mean, um, as human beings, when we prepare for battle, okay, or, or a match or a tug of war or whatever it is, the inclination is to get compressed and tighten up and dig in, which is just the opposite of what's needed <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, to, to, to be creative and loose and, 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 and what have you. And so I think your question, though, hints at what the reality is. The reality is that everyone sort of knows they want to win. Everyone knows it's now or never. And so to sort of contrive looseness is just not real energy. So I don't know that we uh, try to do that, but, you know, if you spoke to like a a three-year-old kid and you told uh, the the, the little lady that you love her, but in a very angry voice, I love you, um, she might start crying, right? And equally, if you told a little baby that, you know, uh, he was the ugliest baby you ever saw in a cute goo-goo-goo-goo voice, the kid might just smile at you with the big blue eyes. And so I use that analogy to suggest that the substance of what is sort of said to the, the kids is, is, is one thing, but the method is as well. I think if they pick up from Taylor or myself that we're flustered and this is it and this is our wedding day and, uh, and so on, that inherently just has a way of making people more stressed. But nothing done necessarily no secret source to try to uh, 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 get them loose was it harder for you to win the first national title or was it harder to defend that title i i will say this and i i'm always perhaps a little too honest show too many cards last year we had a team that had tremendous team juju if you will and we also had a very very strong team i think our record was 28 and 1 um, when the year was done and so, of course, it was always, you know, um, you, you never expect for sure to win because it's that hard, but it wasn't incredibly surprising and it was uh, joyous and what have you and all that stuff. This year, 
was such a hard year. I can't even begin to articulate how many really real issues there were and then imagined issues uh, mixed into the pot that I would have sooner bought $100,000 worth of lottery tickets um, in February than, than bet on uh, our team getting to Illinois, let alone winning. But I would give the the team, the ladies, a lot of credit because all the issues and all the stuff over January to February, which was awful, into March, April, and May, the work was, the level of uh, uh, hard work was off the charts. And slowly, like the dynamic was able to be shifted. And just before the conference tournament in April, all the stuff that needed to come to the fore, I guess, did. And the rest is sort of history. But this year was much, much, much harder, much, much harder. So sometimes when people reach the mountaintop, like you have, you know, you've won two titles now, you've been successful everywhere you've been. I've heard I've never won an NCAA title, but sometimes when people kind of reach the peak of whatever it is that their profession, they kind of go like, oh, is that it? Like that, that's, that's what I've been working so hard for for 15, 20 years. What motivates you moving forward? What's, what's the challenge? What, what keeps you going and keeps that drive for you? It's never really been about winning a championship or whatever. I mean, everyone wants to win, right? Um, for me, um, I really love coaching. I love being on the court. Um, I love trying to play a, a, a part in a young person's life. And I know that's very PC, but it's just that that's who I am. I enjoy it. And so this year, of course, the intention was to defend the title, but that's one intention. The other was to have the team grow and get better as people, as tennis players. And I think in some respects, we succeeded in some we failed, you know, and so that's the stuff that, that, that keeps driving me. But, but to your question, I mean, we won last year, this time I was playing golf and Carmel, uh, not a care in the world, had all these freshmen coming back and nothing in God's green earth could have prepared me for just how horrific a fall we, we had. We had four of eight players physically unable to even walk and more issues than you could, you know, get a team of Freudians to, 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 to get together on. And so um, it, it's definitely just like anyone, right? Emma Raglakanu won the US Open. And of course, everyone knew she's such a young lady, like, uh, uh, there's got to be some regression, right? And so in terms of that, I think it was healthy in a way that our team got beaten and beaten badly early in the season. So that like the idea that we were on some sort of a plateau, they were cured of that very quickly. But I really do enjoy coaching. I enjoy working with young people, trying to sort of uh, help them We've all got, like I said, our good energy, our bad energy, and trying to help them understand and be able to negotiate whatever's getting in the way of their success. And um, that's that's what motivates me, you know, and uh, I do feel I'm very fortunate to be able to do it and to do it at a program which, you know, is funded and supported in a way that, that we can do it really well. And so... I'll, I'll keep doing it. I am obviously getting older, so um, my ability to hit the balls quite as well is getting worse, but I, I still get after it pretty good. We're going to finish here with some Instagram questions. Uh, the first question is, what is the hardest part about being a college head coach? 
I think are just all the demands and yeah, you know, like on our team, we we just had like like such lovely people, but but at a certain point, um, you you have to say no, um, right? You have to say no. The girl that's going to be number seven doesn't get to play in the lineup. That's the hardest part because that girl is trying as hard as uh, your, your number eight, as hard as your number one. That's the hardest part when you're in a business where you're trying to appeal to the best in people and encourage them, having to make lineups and choose and those type of things. Um, that's the hard, the hardest part, yeah. Ramsey and I used to laugh at Duke because whether it was two guys wanting to play one singles or six singles, we are like, one of these guys that we put at six is going to think we're so smart. Man, we see it. We see the game. And the person we put at seven is going to be like, these coaches are idiots, man. They can't. Right. You're always going to go 500 in that that situation. That's actually a good insight. I like that. <laughs> going 500. Halftime in a, in a dual match, you know, you play doubles first and it's a set. It goes so quickly. It's no ad. Uh, but that's kind of like our halftime in a dual match. Yes, it is. What is what? What do you talk to the team about? Has there ever been like a, a halftime speech that you feel like, hey, you know what? We we sucked in doubles, and the girls talked to me. We talked to the girls, and we were able to switch it around. Was there ever a specific instance where that halftime speech kind of changed the match? I'd like to think so. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm powerful enough to to give that message, but. No, I mean, usually, you, you know, obviously you coached in college and you know that the doubles point is, uh, I don't know if it's the right English, but a misnomer, right? Like it only counts for a seventh of the outcome. And yet it is like such a defining point, right? You win the doubles point and everyone is motivated and happy and everyone's got, you know, prickly if, if you lose it. And so I think um, just the message is always uh, some version of, staying on balance and trying to go, you know, be your own champion when you play in the game versus uh, watching the scoreboard down 0-1 or up 0-1. But uh, I don't know that I've ever come up. And nowadays it's so quick, uh, you know, uh, there's not a lot of inspiration uh, or at least I'm not capable of it. (laughs) Right. I mean, we used to always say kind of like, you know, we've been talking all week about whatever, if you're about to play UNC, and you've been hyping them up and you've been talking about what to do. And it's like, if a kid's not doing it, the three minutes before singles, I don't know what you're going to say that's really going to change it at that point. It kind of comes down to what you've been instilling in them through the weeks and the months and the preparation. And hopefully they have that drive and that that fight in them. That That's pretty much it. It's always just some version of uh, uh, fighting for uh, each other and what have you. And, uh, you know, and and then, of course, getting getting to the work. Yeah. So you can only pick one thing here, but I am going to make you be specific. You you okay. semi dodged my question earlier, but I always get this question. You know what the the four O adult or the junior who's just getting going, you don't know their specific game, but if you can give them one thing to focus on that will lead directly to improvement, let them play better, maybe lead to more wins. What was the one thing that you would tell them to work on? So I've learned this. I picked up uh, the the terrible habit of playing golf. Um, it's more of an addiction, and uh, keeping the ball in play, I've I've learned, is a little more important than and 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 so it's consistency because tennis is a, is actually a game of bluff. It's a game of mistakes, not of winners. We all like to you know put on Instagram the forehand winner on the run that we made. But that match just wasn't won because of that shot. That match was won because your opponent made more errors 
uh, forced or unforced than you did. And so, and, and it's a game of bluff with respect to if you do keep the ball in play or so to speak, and you mix in one or two winners to, to, to bluff the kid into having to play too much, uh, that, 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 that's, that's plenty. So the, so the simple take home without being verbose as I am is um, consistency, the ability to, to, to just hit, hit, hit the ball in, in, in more. And it's interesting how a culture is, right? Like we're only interested, like I'm only interested in being able to hit the golf ball as hard as I can. And it doesn't equal a better score, you know? Yeah, th- yeah. This may be, this may be a negative way of saying it, but sometimes I, cause First of all, you use the magic four-letter word there, which is golf with me. So we could go on a whole nother pot. We'll, we'll hang up and talk about that for an hour. But, you know, I've said it's almost easier to avoid losing than it is to learn how to win or take it. So it's like before you're so worried about hitting these winners or coming to the net or doing all these amazing things, let's just get rid of missing in the net from 10 feet behind the baseline. Let's just start there, you know, and let's, let's make our second serves. Let's put the return in play. And then we'll see if we need to do a little bit more based on who you're playing. That, that for all levels, I taught to get my green card, 3-0 tennis in Ohio. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's whether it's a, a 2.5 a women's league match or it's Nadal versus Djokovic. If you look at the stat sheet at the end, the person that wins is the person that made less mistakes, not the person who hit more winners. It, just like, 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 like always, for sure. And so consistency, you know, is the name of the game. The ability to just... Um, uh, uh, be able to to do things that you can do often and often and often and repeatable versus you know sensational stuff. You know, look, I want to thank you for your time. I know how the spring is an absolute sprint, so thank you so much for joining, giving us great insight. I'm going to be here, obviously, for clay courts because it's in Charleston. I'll also be in San Diego, so if you're there, you're bringing your clubs, you're bringing yep. your clubs, and we're playing for sure. Yeah, yeah. You don't 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 make an idol off of me. Don't make an empty jet because I'll be in for 72 holes in one day. Trust me. But really, thank it. you for having me on, 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 and I'll be both at the clay courts and at the at the hard courts for sure. So I look forward to um, stealing some uh, four hours of your time. Okay? I love it. All right. Thanks again, Howard. All right. I want to thank Howard for joining us today. It's not easy to win an NCAA title, let alone two, let alone back-to-back. So congratulations to him and the rest of his team for that amazing accomplishment. I've been seeing a theme amongst my guests lately, and one thing continues to pop up in regards to raising your level of play, and that's making balls. It doesn't have to be pretty all the time, but consistency wins. So I'll be posting a few of my favorite drills in the next few weeks for improving your consistency. So follow my Instagram page at Stokey Tennis, and we'll see if we can improve your consistency and win more matches. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.